Would you please be seated? Taking your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, our reading tonight. Let's begin in verse 21. Since it has been a couple weeks, I do refer you to the previous sermon from Matthew 10, uh, Kingdoms in Conflict, which is something of, a, of an overview of the chapter. Tonight we will we'll spend our majority of our time really on just a couple verses, but for our reading, we will begin at verse 21 and complete at verse 33. Let us pray. Our gracious God, upon the occasion now of the public reading of Scripture and its preaching, we ask for the help that only heaven can provide. Our Father, you are, you are in heaven. You are untouched by the shadow of change that afflicts us fallen mortals. Lord, we thank you and praise you that it is so, and that we can repair to one who is so perfect, immutable, unchangeable. And Lord, we come to you, for you alone are God. You, are, you alone are the perfect constant. And we ask you, O Lord, to give us a measure of your constancy, Communicate it to us through your Holy Spirit in your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and Lord, we do pray <clears throat> that having it, receiving it, as we are beggars in need of it, we would make use of it, and that we would be well attended to what you say tonight to us through your word, that we would recognize the authority therein, that we, O oh Lord, would be fed, strengthened, fortified, and that we would therefore run in the way of your commandments to the praise of your glory and name. We ask this all tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. And Matthew chapter 10, verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who will kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, 
Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. Many years ago, in the country of Hungary, something happened that illustrates quite well our Lord's teaching in this passage. The king of Hungary at the time was found to be very depressed and unhappy. His brother, the prince, who was always in a good mood, asked the king why his soul was downcast. Oh, brother, said the king, I have been a great sinner against God and know not how to die or how to appear before God in judgment. The always cheerful prince laughed. He laughed at his depressed brother. These are but gloomy thoughts, he said. And that's the only comfort the younger brother had. Well, it was customary in those days that if the executioner sounded a trumpet outside your door at any hour, it was a signal to you that you were about to be led away to your execution. So in the dead of night, the king sent the executioner to sound the trumpet outside his brother's door. The prince awoke suddenly in horror, knowing exactly what the trumpet meant. He quickly dressed, stepped through the door, and was immediately seized by the executioner and dragged, pale and trembling, into his brother, the king's bedroom. In great emotional agony, the prince fell on his knees before his brother and begged to know how he had offended. My brother, answered the king, if the sight of a human executioner is so terrible to you, shall I not, having grievously offended God, fear to be brought before the judgment seat of Christ? Of the many things that grip our hearts and control our lives, the fear of man is one of the most formidable. The fear of what man might do to me, the fear of what man might say about me, the fear of man, what man might think about me, few things mean more to us than the regard of other men. It is a condition in the heart of every one of us to fear the judgments of other men. Whether those judgments will touch our lives in violence or will touch our lives in being mocked or will touch our lives in being excluded or will touch our lives in being ignored or they will touch our lives in being rebuked. We are all very much awake to the judgments that men can make of us because we know how they can satisfy our souls or plunge us into anxiety and despair. When the Lord Jesus comes to you and calls you and saves you and brings you to his Father, he means for you to overcome this fear of man. He means to liberate you from it. 
It is one of his healing ministries to all whom he has redeemed to heal this sickness in us, the fear of what men can do to us. He means to free you from performing one way for this group and performing another way for that group. He means to free you from all the work of suiting up to act like one person at church while being quite a different person at home. He means to free you from all the work of looking like a Christian when you're around Christians, but then remembering to revert to looking like a worldling when you're out among the world. He means to free you from all of that because all of it is driven by a fear of man. He means to save you from the fear of man. It is the Lord's will that you overcome it and leave behind the hypocrisy that man-fearing always leads to. And so in this passage tonight, our Lord is coming to help us overcome the fear of man. And to do it, he must preach to us about a greater fear, the fear of God. You will never overcome the fear of man until you fear God. The remedy for our fear of man is to learn the fear of God. The remedy, remedy for fearing man's judgment of you is to fear God's judgment of you. Notice what Jesus does not say in our text. He does not come to the man-fearers and say, you know, man really cannot do anything to you. Jesus does not say, men cannot hurt you. Men cannot discourage you. He doesn't say that. Men cannot make you feel alone in the world. He says nothing like that. Jesus does not say it because his remedy is no divine version of positive thinking. His remedy is not to get you thinking that man's judgments of you will never touch you. They will. That is all throughout Matthew 10. You will be touched by the same judgments of men that touched your master, the head of the house. The executioner may really come outside your door. The Lord says as much in verse 28. The judgments of men that stir within us the fear of men will not be overcome while we are following Christ here on earth. That is why Matthew 10 is in your Bible. If you ever thought that you could be a Christian and put yourself out of reach from the judgments of men, Jesus is telling you in Matthew 10, it cannot happen. The servants will not be greater than the master. So if those judgments of men are not overcome in this life, then how can the fear of man be overcome? By learning the fear of a greater judgment, the judgment of God. Men may kill our bodies, the Lord says. Their judgment can go that far, but it can go no further. God's judgment can go much further. And after you have died in the body, God can cast that body and your soul into hell. This is why God's judgment is the only judgment you should fear. And when you fear God's judgment, you will be free from fearing the many multicolored judgments of men. 
You'll be free to be a whole person in your following of Christ. A whole person publicly, a whole person privately, the same person, because you know that God's judgment is the judgment that matters. What is then God's judgment? It is the authority to cast anyone into hell. Beloved, hear this. The eternal living God has the authority to cast any one of you into hell forever. He needs to ask permission from no one. He has the will and the power to do it. He has the right to do it. What is hell? Hell is a place made by God to be a just display of his righteous judgment upon all who reject his righteousness as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To put it more narrowly, hell is a place of unceasing torment, a place of conscious misery, a place of everlasting punishment. Think about what you've just heard. Hell is a place of unceasing torment, conscious misery, and everlasting torment, and there will be bodies and souls of men and women there by the will and authority of God. And you are greatly blessed because you are being told what is coming before it has come upon you so that you don't have to have it come upon you. The judgment of God is coming to you so softly tonight so that 50 years from tonight, tomorrow, excuse me, 50 years from today, why not today, or five minutes from now, you can know what is coming and avoid it. Let me break those down, those three things that I just said, unceasing torment, conscious misery, everlasting punishment. Hell is a place of unceasing torment. The word the Lord uses for hell in our text is the Aramaic word Gehenna, which itself is a word that stands for the Valley of Hinnom. This was a place south of the city of Jerusalem where historically gross idolatry was practiced. From the time of King Ahaz to the days of King Manasseh, children were burned in fire there as an offering to Moloch, a false god. Ahaz burned his own children there. Years later, after King Josiah destroyed this place, it became a town dump, a place where the city burned its garbage. So there was always a fire burning in Gehenna, in the Valley of Hinnom, and that fire became a symbol for the unquenchable fire of God's wrath. Why fire? Every creature learns early not to play with fire. Fire devours. It burns. Its pain is not gradual. It is sudden. Now, this does not mean that hell is literally a fire pit. If the word Gehenna is symbolic of hell, then the fire of hell is likely symbolic as well. 
But biblical symbols always point to something real. Always. God is never winking when he uses a symbol. If the symbol is fire, then the reality is torment. Plain and simple. And so in Mark 9, 43, the Lord says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell to the unquenchable fire. The Lord's point is that the torment of putting sin to death in your body is nothing compared to the torment of hell. Hell is a place of unceasing torment. You think fighting against sin is going to cost you too much? Not fighting against sin is going to cost you much more in the fires of hell. There are people who smirk when they hear these words. And their smirk is a testimony that they belong in hell. And the Lord is, in his love and grace, warning them to stop smirking and hear and believe and fall on their face before him. This is his love to say these things to us while we are yet outside of this horrific place. We also said hell is a place of conscious misery. In Matthew 13, the Lord speaks of events that will happen at the end of the age. Listen to what he says in Matthew 13, 41. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Men cast into hell do not sleep. They do not slumber. Instead, they weep and they gnash their teeth, Jesus says. Church is the place for sleeping, not hell. In hell, they are always awake in their torment. Revelation 14.11 says about those in hell, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. They are completely awake, but only awake to their torment. There's no pleasure for them. Hell is a place of conscious, unending misery. There's no escaping once the Lord casts us there. Hell is also a place of everlasting punishment. No expiration date. In Matthew 25, 46, the Lord says that on Judgment Day, some will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, the same word translated eternal in that scripture is used twice in the verse. Once to describe the blessedness of life in heaven, eternal, and the other to describe the punishment of hell. Both destinies, vastly different in quality, are eternal in nature. They are unending. This means there will never be a time when those in hell cease to exist. They will not be annihilated into a non-existence. Their punishment will go on and on and on, and it must, it must 
for they have scorned the righteousness of God as revealed in his law, as revealed in creation, as revealed most fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We quickly understand, our kids do anyway, that if you shoot a random stranger, you certainly deserve to go to jail and perhaps worse. But if you shoot a police officer, you deserve much worse. If you shoot a president, you deserve much worse. The rank and authority of the one whom you seek to destroy testifies to the measure of the judgment you deserve. Hell must be unending. For the one who is offended is the eternal God, the good and gracious and righteous God. What then have we seen about God's authority to judge? We have seen that God's judgments are much, much more severe than man's. Man may injure you in this life, but God can injure you forever. Jesus wants this, excuse me, Jesus wants his would-be followers to know this truth. He wants hell to scare the hypocrisy out of you. He really does. Did you see what he said to you? I didn't say it to you. Did you hear what Jesus Christ, the risen Lord of all creation, said to you in tonight's text? He said to you, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He gives us this hard truth to keep us from being two-faced and double-minded and false in our religion. He gives, gives us this hard truth to shepherd us to a religion of the heart where our faith in Christ is sincere and our godliness is genuine and our whole person is engaged in our confession that Christ is both Savior and Lord. He gives us this truth to keep us from taking his name in vain. Now it is right to ask this question. Is the fear of God's judgment supposed to consume all our enjoyment of God, leaving us with none? Are we supposed to be so afraid of God and of hell that we never rest and never repose before God like beloved children? The answer is certainly no. It is not God's will that you be so gripped with a servile fear that you have no enjoyment of him. It is his will, however, that you be so gripped with a fear of him that you do not settle down in the enjoyment of worldliness or hypocrisy or false religion or the admiration of men, all things for which the wrath of God is coming upon the world. The much greater severity that God's judgment should give us is great courage to overcome the fear of men. Fear God instead. Fear his wrath until you're on the right side of his righteousness. Having gained it by faith in Christ's life and death, continue to fear him as it concerns sin but enjoy him as it concerns 
his kindness, his love, his dear and tender interest in you. And after that faith takes hold of you, continue to fear God's fiery judgment on all wickedness, all falsehood, and all hypocrisy. But do not fear his tenderness. Do not fear his kindness. Do not fear that he is capricious, unstable, wild. He is not. He is as steadfast in his love and fixed and firm in it as he is steadfast in his wrath and hatred and fixed and firm in it. And so this is the Lord's point, that we should enjoy him as well. This is his point in verses 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Now, this word sparrows is literally little, little birds. The poor would buy these little birds for very little money. And they bought them to most often eat them. The Lord is saying that your Father in heaven has his eye upon even these obscure little birds that are sold for these obscure little coins and eaten by these obscure little people, the poorest of the poor. The Lord watches over the exchanging of those birds. God knows when two little birds of his own making and his keeping are taken out of the world. How much more does he know the plight of his obscure covenant children who are traded in by the world, traded in by their own children, traded in by their own fathers? How much more does the Lord know the plight of his covenant children when they are devoured by worldly judgments? As covenant sons and daughters of God hidden in Christ, you are of more value to him than the sparrows he takes daily inventory of. His eye is always upon you. You are of more value than many sparrows. What did the Lord pay to ransom you? Not a few pennies. His one and only son. To further push out our doubts about God's divine affections, our Lord Jesus adds a word about the hairs on our head. They are all numbered. For some of us, it's a quick count. But this is not a statement meant for God to show off his omniscience. He is certainly omniscient. But this language about hairs on head is about family protection, family love. Just like a mother knows where the colics are, a wife knows where the early new bald spot is, the Lord knows the intimate details of our life, for he is our father. And he has become our father by making us sons. And he has made us sons by uniting us by faith to his own eternal son. In Christ, the wrath of God has already been poured out on us believers. We have been crucified with Christ. We have been buried with Christ. We have been raised up with Christ. Everything that is his has become ours by faith, by the Holy Spirit. And that means that his Father's love is ours too. As the Apostle John says in his first letter, So we have come to know and to believe 
the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. In this world, Christ was exiled and cast away in judgment by worldly men. So shall we be if we walk with God by faith. You can't escape it. Don't even talk about trying to escape it. Don't even think about trying to escape it. Don't go seeking it, but never think that it is your mission in life to escape it. It is actually your calling and privilege to be like your master. But just as Christ was delivered from the world's judgment, so shall we be. We shall be raised up with him, for we are sons with him. He is the son by nature. We are sons by adoption, by grace. We fear men because we want admiration. We want men's respect. We want men's protection. Do you want someone's admiration? Seek God's admiration above all. Do you want someone to be pleased with you? Seek God being pleased with you. Do you want someone to approve of you? Seek God's approval of you. Do you want to be right with someone? Be right with God above all. Do you want someone to love you? Seek the love of God above all loves. Do you want someone to make promises to you? Seek the promises of God above all. God grants you permission to set him in the place where your restless, fallen, fearful heart would normally set man. He gives you permission to put him there with no rivals. Our hearts are always searching for assurances that we are pleasing to someone and protected by someone. We want someone before whom our life counts. We want someone before whom our actions are justified. And we will take this from mortal men more easily than we will ever take it from God. Why? Because mortal men grant their approval without requiring any faith from us. We can see their approval with our eyes. We can hear our, their approval of us with our ears. We can experience their approval of us immediately with our senses. We see their smiles. We see them open doors to us, literally, figuratively. We see them give us a seat at the table. We hear them speak highly of us to others. We also hear them cease their ridicule of us when we accommodate them. But those who by the spirit and faith see God's approval of them in Christ, they are even more sure that they are approved. How do I know that? Because they turn away from the world. They turn away from needing men to provide any of that. To be able to turn away from the world's approval, which we can see, touch, feel, and hear, and turn to God's approval, which is invisible in Christ, crucified and risen, testifies how much more power there is in faith 
than there is in sight. So, beloved, in this little passage tonight, in these words tonight, from Jesus Christ of Nazareth, no one has cared more for your body and soul than he has. No one has come to you and told you these truths about hell and about God's love like Jesus Christ has. That means God cares more for your body and soul than anyone you know. How do you know how much someone cares for you? Here is how you know. Ask yourself this question. Do they want to save me from the judgments of God? Or do they want only to save me from their own judgments? The judgments of men, the judgments of the world. If they don't want to save you from God's judgment, then they are not caring for you in the way God cares for you. They may want to save you from embarrassment and save you from ridicule and save you from the emperor's sword and save you from prisons. But if they do not want to save you from hell like Jesus does, they do not love you with the highest love. Jesus does. That's why he has said these things to you. There was a big debate in the country of Norway in 1953 about who really loved the people of Norway. A man named Ole Hallisby or a bishop of the church named Hamar Christian Sheldorup. The reason there was this debate is because Ole Halsby, a faithful Lutheran minister, went on what was their national public radio, the NRK, and, a, and in a radio broad, broadcast all over the country, Halsby said, if you are an unbeliever and you fall dead to the floor this moment, you fall at the same time into hell. How can you who is unconverted lie down calmly and sleep at night? You who do not know if you will wake up in your bed or in hell. Close quote. Now, O'Halsby said that on national public radio. And the country of Norway went berserk. It was a massive public controversy. And one of the bishops in the state Lutheran church said O'Halsby had just practiced ministerial malpractice. And his warrant for it was this. What O'Halsby said on national radio was wrong because it contradicts a religion of love. That is always the first card to be played by the unbelieving liberals. Make love your foundation, and it can be a mile-wide tunnel that you can drive all sorts of air through. The foundation of even love is the word of God and the revelation of God in Jesus Christ crucified. Oh, Halsby 
in imitation of the Savior, loved the people of Norway far more than this bishop who tried to silence him. Jesus Christ loves you more than anyone. You have no friend like him to come and tell you what he has told you tonight. Fear the one who can destroy body and soul in hell. You must fear him so that you might love him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have come to us in your dear son and have spoken plain and straight to all of us. Father, we confess you have the authority, you have the right, you have the power to cast anyone into hell for their sin. Father, we thank you that you have told us that all those who are dead in their sins and trespasses and still without a Redeemer, still without a love for Christ, will be found there. We thank you for telling us this in our youth. We thank you for telling us this in our middle age. We thank you for telling this in our late years so that we never become soft hypocrites, thinking lightly of sin, thinking lightly of Christ, thinking lightly of the cross. Father, I pray for those who are gathered here and hearing this message, who are themselves already persuaded that if they died today, they would end up in hell. Father, I pray for them that they would see the great love through which God has reached them tonight, that they would see that he has come to them by the mouth of his beloved son through the eternal word of God and told them the truth about the future. And I pray that they would indeed have a productive fear, that it would cause them to run and take shelter. And he who is love itself. And Father, for those who are even much worse off, who think there is no such place as hell, who think they will never be there, who think that even if there is one and they are to be cast there, that they can talk their way out of it. I pray for those who are much worse off, Lord, that even they, that you would conquer their dullness, their hardness, their pride, their arrogance, conquer it with the testimony of our Savior's love to them and coming to them tonight before it is too late to tell them the truth. Ask them, Lord, I pray, by your spirit, if they have such a friend as Jesus. Ask them what kind of friends they have. When was the last time a friend warned them about eternal, unquenchable torment due to them for their sins? Oh, Lord, may they find Jesus to be the true friend. Open their heart to him. 
We pray all these things, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.